go. Okay. All right. Heavy breathing into the microphone. <laughs> what is up, world? It is January 18th, 2020. We are no longer in the hellscape that was 2020. It is a brave new world. Uh, you can just break into the Capitol building and uh, you might find yourself asking law enforcement, Sh- shouldn't you be stopping us? Why aren't you here? No, did you see that, dude? They had, like, uh, footage released from, like, the fucking Viking guy and his little hillbilly buddies breaking in. Oh, the... Or, no, break, I mean, Breaking in is not the right word. Were they, like, interviewing? Strolling interviewing into the Senate. Uh, I mean, they were just, like, hanging out. Mm-hmm. The policeman was like, hey, uh, you guys all right? Do you need medical attention? And, uh, <laughs> like, he... I mean, okay, so it was like one cop and I don't know, mm-hmm. like a handful of people, but I mean, still. Yeah. Uh, if you're like breaking into the Senate and you have to ask the cop, like, hey, man, shouldn't you be stopping us right now? <laughs> uh, you're probably not really a threat to anything powerful. <laughs> yeah. Man, re listening to that episode that we did about the two pooches, it really is just absolutely nuts. That basic thing that you identified at the beginning, which was this thing that was like very obviously going to happen, that we ostensibly pay millions of dollars in tax money to prevent from happening. I mean, they were fucking, they were, they had like a Facebook event for it and shit. Right. (laughs) Weren't they like saying on Twitter and stuff a couple days beforehand, like, hey, Mm -hmm. let's all show up at the Capitol on the 6th. And if you're just like, a run-of-the-mill American citizen, you would think that the FBI should be, like, on top of that shit, right? <laughs> I mean, they had to have been. Well, I think that you have to look back to, you know, who it was and why it was occurring. That Yeah, you know, definitely. I mean, just, like, the response or lack thereof yeah. tells me yeah. that they knew this shit was going down. If it was just a bunch of random people breaking yeah. into the goddamn Senate, they would have been executed. If it was literally just, like, a bunch of drunks that Mm -hmm. decided they were going to go storm the senate on a random day yeah i mean that would not have gone well for them right welcome to the compost bin of history the podcast where we stick our pitchforks into old ideas and mix them around with the new ones uh last week we stuck our pitchfork into the beer hall pooch in weimar germany from 1923 and that's kind of what we've been continuing the discussion of here today yeah, so I guess we're not doing the Alamo again uh, for a little for another week. Well, <laughs> it seems um, like we want to talk about this other thing almost. Sure, I was going to say we could, or we could let like the benefit pick. of we could let the benefit of hindsight kind of like kick in for one more week. Well, I guess it is kind of still a popular topic in the media. I want to reaffirm though that I have not been following any of this at all. In terms of actually reading articles or like digging deep, I have no interest in it, essentially. I'm more interested in the historical ramifications and the possible, you know, aftermath than, you know, oh, so-and-so got arrested. Oh, there was some, you know, buttfuck legislator from, you know, some holler in West Virginia that was there. I'm like, I don't care about any of that shit, you know. Hey, that is Mr. Buttfuck. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, I, f- I don't know. I just I feel like everyone else is pretty much saying probably more well informed and has hotter yeah. takes than us right now on that. I don't know. Well, I've got man, I've got like an icy hot take. So, so you know what? I'm just gonna go with it. I'm gonna tell you tell you your options, and then we're gonna you're gonna decide, Jared, or we can flip a coin or something. Okay. This right. is this is a real American type of choice because you only have two options and you're going to get the other one next week anyway. And neither of them are that great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, no, dis- no. They're both good. <laughs> I disagree. Uh, yeah. Disagree with myself. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you what we've got. We can continue with our Forget About the Alamo series. And I've got some very interesting information as far as setting up the physical place the actual physical place of the alamo and talking more about um how catholicism influenced development um particularly with relations to like indigenous populations in new spain which is good history nerd shit and there's some good environmental science in there too or we can continue our you know political theory examination with what I'm going to call Trotsky on Nazis. Mm. This is going to be a reading series. Basically, Trotsky, um, when Hitler took power in Nazi Germany in 1933, Trotsky, a contemporary of these events, who was living in exile at the time in Turkey, uh, wrote an analysis titled, What is National Socialism? And I read it. I think it's, I think it's great. And it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you and I, we know a lot about history. We know a lot about, um, environmental science, political theory. We know a little bit, but this is kind of like when Dan Carlin would pull out a Churchill quote or something like that. We I'm pull more out a of like quote. an example of that old adage of like a little information can be a dangerous thing <laughs> sometimes when it comes to that kind of stuff. I think we know enough about political theory to know how much we don't know about political theory. Yeah, and that, definitely. And that sometimes when, you know, these types of events occur, we we know enough to look to people like Leon Trotsky for the solid gold take, you know, like the fucking the fucking good shit. And <laughs> it would be a fun reading series. It would kind of, you know, highlight some different things. And Has anyone ever been exiled more than Leon Trotsky? Yeah, that's the thing, man. Um, Trotsky's basically my hero, <laughs> and he's kind of the inspiration for the even like the title of this show. Oh, <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> um, I do love i i I'm passionate about Trotsky. See, but. I don't know that much about Trotsky before he got to Mexico. Okay. Well, this would be, uh, you know, during his life of exile, he doesn't really write about himself here at all. It's just him giving a solid ana- analysis what is national socialism how does yeah, that he was come a, about he was a russian poster back in right 19 teens yeah so in this very real american choice between these two outcomes the other one you're just going to hear next week uh what do you think oh hit me with the trotsky man all right just roll with the trotsky <laughs> all right we're gonna sit on the alamo for one more week we're going to commence with our first ever historical reading series. What do we ti- what do we title this reading series? Uh, Will Menneker eat your heart out? 
So, uh, yeah, let's let's roll with Leon Trotsky. What is National Socialism? And this originally appeared in The Modern Thinker in October 1933. And I guess I did want to preface this by kind of saying, like, why were all these leftist people in this time period writing all of these hot takes down? And I think you have to consider that the left-wing intellectual journal was the podcast of the 19 teens, 20s, 30s. That if you were, if you had hot takes on world events that ran against, you know, the yellow journalism, that was a word we should have used last time in terms of, you know, the fake news that was being propagated during this time, time span. Yellow journalism was a worldwide phenomenon because it sold papers, right? You just spread bull, bullshit because if it inflames people's anxiety and then they, you know, buy more newspapers, right? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and that's why, you know, you, you can even tie that in with cannabis law in the United States, you know. But uh, that's a different podcast. Why is it called yellow journalism? Um, I think because it was super racist towards people of Asian descent. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was the that was just the entertainment of the day. Was I mean, it was all super racist. Yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe you'll learn something saucy about those darn yellows. Well, right, and so. You know, you're going to think this is crazy living in 2021, but the mainstream media 100 years ago was incredibly racist. Yeah, I don't. I'm not surprised by pretty much anything, <laughs> especially when it comes to history, especially when it comes to racism, especially when it comes to the media. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, that's that's just that's just a me thing. Yeah, well. Just like with today and podcasting, you know, a hundred years ago, if you had a take that was actually <laughs> based in like economic and class analysis that might piss off people with more power than you critically, like people who might publish newspapers or, um, you know, what's iHeartMedia podcasts or something like that. Well, you have to take it to the underground sphere. And you have to do a podcast or you have to go and publish it in a left-wing journal like The Modern Thinker in 1933. Yeah. Or you got to write down your 99 grievances and post it on the wall of church. <laughs> yeah, that was the, the, the fucking 1517 version <laughs> of, uh, of radical posting. <laughs> yeah. proof, that posting, proof that posting is not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> yeah um oh dude trotsky trotsky has some has some thoughts on protestantism from some of his other work not what we're going to look at here but trotsky basically looks at you know the communist movement as a protestant movement as right, like an right. evangelical movement before we kick this off though trotsky's your hero right yeah, this is an English language podcast based on the United States. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who Trotsky was? Right. So Leon Trotsky was, I guess he's most well known for being um, one of the main players in the Russian Revolution of 1917. But interestingly, he was also one of the main players in the Russian Revolution of 1905, which is not really something you can say about many of the other 1917 players. And, um, 
came from a just an absolutely interesting, diverse background. Son of kind of an upper middle class Jewish farmer in the steppe of southern Russia. Boy, that's Ukraine. quite a that's quite a combo right there. Upper middle class Jewish farmer. Yeah, you know, someone who bought out a an estate and was able to provide services for serfs and other smallholders in the community, like a mill, um, you know, stabling and that kind of thing. So his dad was like a pretty successful kulak. Yeah, his dad was a kulak. And in fact, that's like something that Trotsky basically acknowledged that he kind of started to become radicalized when he, you know, as a teenager was like, (laughs) oh, my dad's just ripping off all these poor people who can't read. And he was like, this, uh, this is actually pretty shitty that our wealth is dependent upon exacerbating the misery of others. And I think, you know, it took him a few more years to get to, you know, his communist belief, but Trotsky was a true believer in the sense that I think it's hard to like look at history and Trotsky's role and say that he wasn't, uh, or that he was in it for himself. He was, he was, he was pretty selfless. And he did things that are controversial, things that I think, you know, history looks poorly back upon. But the the simple fact for being exiled so many times kind of shows that he was always willing to be the unpopular one. Kind of like what, you know, he was an ecologist in a sense. In that, you know, when things were going really well, he was the guy over there saying, this is when it's going to go really poorly and we need to be ready for it. Uh, was he... <clears throat> Did he ever, like, meet Kropotkin or anything like that? I don't know if he met Kropotkin. I don't I don't think so. We'll have to do a whole series on him at some point. But needless to say, he always has, like, just really interesting looks at things. And, and also importantly, you know, Trotsky is coming from the Eastern European Jewish tradition. That's his family. And so I think that he, as a Jewish Bolshevik... Although he didn't actively identify with Judaism, like he wasn't a yeah, practicing why Jew. Would someone, why would someone like that care so much about National Socialism? Well, he, you know, as we heard last week, Hitler was kind of obsessed with what he viewed as, you know, the Jewish version of socialism, which is just normal socialism built around, you know, the inevitability of class conflict. And so as, you know, an actual Jewish Bolshevik, I think Trotsky is is well poised to kind of provide the rebuttal and an analysis of Hitler's bastardized national socialism. And so, you know, whereas you and I are just mortal men made of flesh and blood and neurons, and our takes will maybe only be lukewarm at best when these types of momentous historical events occur. We can look at Trotsky and we can say, here, here's the, you know, immortal voice of the, the proletarian's warrior reaching out through time and giving us a, a base to stand on. Well, I'm ready. Okay. Naive minds think that the office of a kingship lodges in the king himself, in his ermine cloak and his crown, in his flesh and bones. As a matter of fact, the office of kingship is an interrelation between people. The king is king only because the interests and prejudices of millions of people are refracted through his person. When the flood of development sweeps away these interrelations, 
then the king appears to be only a washed-out man with a flabby lower lip. He who was once called Alfonso XIII, or Trump I, could discourse upon this from fresh impressions. So, what we're saying here is that the social contract is a real thing, right? Yeah, he's also... While he's saying that, he's telling us that, like, the Industrial Revolution is what is getting rid of all these kingships. Right. That um, as development occurs, and we can think of that in terms of technology, we can think of that in terms of evolution as well with something like coronavirus. All of that is still the development of productive forces, which is to say the material reality that we exist within. When those things happen the old social contracts that we make with our political leaders change. And the king is only king because everyone believes that he's king. And if, you know, the developments occur that no longer necessitate that attitude, then he's just another asshole. Well, yeah, if the king's no longer the only person with all the money and all the power, he starts looking a little more shabby. Right. So this is some dialectical thinking, right? It's kind of rejecting a simplistic viewpoint of leadership and authority and saying that there are complex feed-forward and feed-backward mechanisms that come from top to bottom and bottom to top. When did he write this? 1933. Oh, okay. So he's seen a lot of kingships uh, kind of Yeah, this is after... uh... I mean, hey, this is during Stalinism, right? This is during the first round of purges. Okay. In in Soviet Russia. So he's a little bit writing this about Stalin then. I think he is. Yeah. I mean, he hated Stalin, right? <laughs> well, and that's the beautiful despised Stalin. I mean, yeah. and again, that kind of shows that, you know, Trotsky Stalin, I think we have to say was in it for himself. I think that's pretty oh, obvious. Definitely. But Trotsky was not. And that's why they was, there was natural antipathy between them from day one. Well, and it lasted Lenin... until Stalin killed Trotsky. Didn't Lenin, even before he died, basically say, like, watch out for this fucking Stalin dude, because... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he did. But, yeah, you know, this is basically how Trotsky introduces us to the topic, but starts with, like, a wide scope, right? And I, I would like to think that there's, like, some, you know, high schooler out there who's listening to our podcast for, like, you know, his history essays or something, and this is this is good advice, you know, start wide <laughs> with some like, you know, interesting, but kind of amorphic, you know, axioms and then then narrow in. Yeah, but don't don't write about communists in high school. <laughs> you're going to get an F. <laughs> you, yeah, you just don't do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Take it from Jared. <laughs> you have to write about America's beautiful generals from World War Two. And if you do that, you'll get an A. <laughs> do not write. Also, do not write about El Duce just because your history teacher looks a little bit like him. He, he will not like that at all. <laughs> I hope that you said that in your history paper. It was like you. My, this, I'm writing this because Mr. So and So kind of looks like Mussolini. Oh no, dude! I got like a picture of Mussolini where he's like standing with his fists at his hips. Uh huh. Because uh, Mr. Tucker used to kind of do that, and uh, I. I put Mr. Tucker was kind of short too, so I 
put this like giant blown up picture of El Duce like right next to the clock <laughs> above the board. And then Mr. Tucker was pissed because he couldn't reach it even when he was standing on a chair. And <laughs> he was like, who did this? And see, uh, in that getting getting mad about that just shows that it was an accurate criticism. I mean, yeah, totally. He was a fucking he was a, if you weren't a fascist, you would think it was funny. He was a fascist, dude. It was his class was dumb as fuck. Like he would he would hand write his notes like on the board before we got there. And then before like, you got there. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like he would like fill this board. And, you know, it was like a, we were on like the A, B schedule thing. So the class was like, what, an hour? Yeah. And like throughout the hour, you're just like expected to copy down these notes while he like tells you about like, you know, American high school history and then like threatens people that he's going to make you write an essay about why submarines don't have screen doors if you (laughs) talk out of turn. Man, we teach history so fucking shittily in America, in the United States, that is. I mean, it was a terrible class. So easy. So easy. Yeah. You basically, like, just copy the notes down. That'd take you 20 minutes. Then you could just fuck around a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then every day you had, like, a homework assignment, which was basically copy one page worth of stuff out of this chapter. Basically anything. Just copy it word for word and turn it in. Right. There's no way he read any of them. Yeah. I would even put stuff, like, in there, like... If you are reading this and comment to me, you are allowed to give me a C on this grade. And, like, never, never call me on it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's pick up with Trotsky because I think this is actually relevant to your story. All right. The leader by will of the people differs from the leader by will of God in that the former is compelled to clear the road for himself or, at any rate, to assist the conjuncture of events in discovering him. Nevertheless, the leader is always a relation between people, the individual supply to meet the collective mind. And in a way, that's that's the role that a teacher fills, right? <laughs> so did Trotsky, did Trotsky just tell us why you're not supposed to call your teacher by its first name? <laughs> I think Trotsky would have uh, probably called his teachers by the first name. but Oh, of course, but he's telling you why you're not supposed to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> But yeah, so the leader is always a relation between people, the individual supply to meet the collective demand. The controversy over Hitler's personality becomes the sharper, the more the secret of his success is sought in himself. In the meantime, another political figure would be difficult to find that is in the same measure the focus of anonymous historic forces. I would say that we found that leader in Trump, another leader who's the same measure as Hitler, the focus of anonymous historical forces. Yeah, just a guy that capital doesn't like temperamentally and all that stuff, but right. message wise or, you know, yeah, basically they have the right enemies. Mm-hmm. And here it is. Not every exasperated petty bourgeois could have become Hitler, but... A particle of Hitler is lodged in every exasperated petty bourgeois. And the I think that's exact, being kind. <laughs> the exact same is true for Trump in America in 2021. Yeah, I think saying a particle is being kind. Yeah, a huge chunk of Donald Trump is lodged 
in the mind of every exasperated petty bourgeois in America. Even Mike Bloomberg. Yeah. And exactly that another political figure would be difficult to find that is the same measure, the focus of anonymous historic forces, which is to say it's hard to identify, you know, exactly what makes these people work at the times and places that they're working. You know, was it, what is it about Trump's celebrity, his, um, you know, honestly, even his harassment of women, his, uh, you know, relationship with his horrible children, um, the economics of the 1980s, all these different, like, you know, it's a historical vortex of shit that gives spawn to these, these types of people and trying to like say, this is what did it. This is what worked is a, a fool's errand. All right. The rapid growth of German capitalism prior to the First World War by no means signified a simple destruction of the middle classes. Although it ruined some layers of the petty bourgeoisie, it created others anew. Around the factories, artisans and shopkeepers. Within the factories, technicians and executives. But, while preserving themselves and even growing numerically, the old and the new petty bourgeois compose a little less than one-half the German nation. The middle classes have lost the last shadow of independence. They live on the periphery of large-scale industry and the banking system, and they live off the crumbs from the table of the monopolies and the cartels, and off the spiritual alms of their theorists and professional politicians. Well, that could have been written yesterday. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the last... 30 years of development of American capitalism has kind of destroyed the middle classes in a sense, and that it has reshuffled or rather not a simple destruction, but that it's reshuffled the middle classes. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, my company only exists because we mop up the, like the crumbs from all of the giant monopolistic trucking companies. Right. I mean, I remember like when Obamacare came around and they were like, they dropped because of the the work requirement for health insurance. Suddenly it was the jobs. Most jobs were just 40 hours a week, but then suddenly like half jobs, half of the jobs were 30 hours a week or less. Most of them would love it if you would just work up to 32, which was that borderline limit. But, um, it's it's that type of thing that, you know, shoves some people out and moves other people in because of the way that um, work realigns around these changes. Um, maybe that's not the best example. I, I think yours is better. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> okay, let's continue. The defeat in 1918, that is the defeat of Germany raised a wall in the path of German imperialism. And why would, <laughs> and let's just pause there. Again, you know, the whole reason you do imperialism is to delay the class conflict that's inevitable in any in any society. If you keep bringing in more resources and more goods through your imperialism, like America is doing and has done, then you can continue to put off that inevitable confrontation between um, you know, capital and and the workers in the most simplistic sense well you can't stop the imperialistic like 
capacity. You can't stop the imperialism once it starts. Right. It's just once you can't go abroad anymore, you start turning those same forces inwards. And the defeat of Germany in 1918 symboled their inability to continue that process. And that's oh, why yeah. suddenly they start ripping the, ripping themselves apart, basically. <clears throat> so external dynamics changed to internal dynamics. The war passed over into revolution. Social democracy, which aided the Hohenzollerns in bringing the war to its tragic conclusion, did not permit the proletariat to bring the revolution to its conclusion. And I'll just point out the Hohenzollerns were the like imperial family, the dynasty of Germany. Yeah, really cool castle. Yep. Uh, the Weimar democracy spent 14 years finding interminable excuses for its own existence. The Communist Party called the workers to a new revolution, but proved incapable of leading it. The German proletariat passed through the rise and collapse of war, revolution, parliamentarianism, and pseudo-Bolshevism. At the time when the old parties of the bourgeoisie had drained themselves to the dregs, the dynamic power of the working class also found itself sapped. And I really think that's another good parallel for today. Oh, yeah. Like I was saying, though, uh, when we were talking in the Pooch episode, like, those poor, like, working class Germans had it so much worse than yeah. the average working class American right now. Mm-hmm. Like, indescribably worse. No doubt. And... Not you know, to say things aren't bad, but I'm just, you know. But the tragedy and farce thing, I think, actually does, you know, that's that's a telling example, I think, in that first is tragedy, then is farce. With, you know, the we can look at the the Iraq war, the, um, you know, inevitable, uh, you know, ramifications of that at home um, in terms of, you know, the social justice movements of the Obama era and their failures. Oh, yeah. And, you know, not that that's pseudo Bolshevism by any means, but that's the farce part of it. Right. It's that some people would call it that. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, and that's the farce. Right. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you know, it is it is not as bad. But I think that, you know, my concern here. Well, we'll we'll talk about that at the end because Trotsky basically finishes with it. Yeah, I'm kind of doing that thing where people want to be like well i mean sure mm -hmm. your life's kind of hard but like other people have it so much worse why don't you just buck up right there's your conservative language that we use yeah <laughs> pull yourself up <laughs> by your by your bootstraps yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't believe in that at all <laughs> no all right so the post-war chaos hit the artisans, the peddlers, and the civil employees no less cruelly than the workers. The economic crisis in agriculture was ruining the peasantry. The decay of the middle strata did not mean that they were made into proletarians inasmuch as the proletariat itself was casting out a gigantic army of chronically unemployed. The pauperization of the petty bourgeois barely covered by ties of socks and artificial silk, eroded all official creeds, and first of all, the doctrine of democratic parliamentarianism. And I think that's what we're seeing right now in, in the United States. 
um, the pauperization of the petty bourgeois. That's that's what you know, and this is what Chrisman's been talking about in his latest streams is that this is going to be you know the the coming of Democrat austerity, right? And that the petty bourgeois, the the you know boat owners and the Trumpsters are going to be pauperized, and that that conspicuous consumption. That, you know, you can, you have enough credit to buy an F-350, even though you live in an apartment in the suburbs. Oh, yes. Spelling the undoing of our democratic parliamentarianism. There's going to be a lot of people, uh, instead of Hoovervilles, we're going to have F-350Villes pretty soon. Yeah. No, I totally, I, man, I really think that's true. (laughs) That was another one of those. I'm serious about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's just absurd to imagine. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? That's gonna that's gonna spawn a lot of um, a lot of men who don't have jobs and who have way too much time on their hands. And yeah, and are, way too are, much access to fireball. Way too much access to firepower. And no, no, are, no, no, and fireball, fire, fireball, fireball, and firepower, <laughs> and who are forced together by by their economic conditions. And well, not too close together. Not they're not gay now. Oh right, right. Yes. <laughs> yeah oh man there were some there were some gay nazis what yeah really Mm -hmm. yeah that's interesting yeah i yeah man it's weird Uh, (laughs) but i mean that's just what were they just gonna like castrate themselves then or well you know um i think i i would have to look back at my my hitler book but i think one of them got purged there was one person in the higher up leadership of the nazi party maybe ernst rome but i can't remember who uh was purged in the night of long knives but he was kind of like an a, a semi-open homosexual in the nazi hierarchy an openly gay nazi seems like that dude's got the biggest fucking balls in germany <laughs> or he just doesn't read very well but I mean, I think that's one of the things about this type of, um, you know, fascist thought, which is that contradictions aren't really relevant if they're on your side. Well, yeah, I mean, dude, I don't know what George Zimmerman's up to right now, but I guarantee that guy's like a fucking proud boy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, his, his so-called buddies would turn on him instantly if they like get their fucking boogaloo or whatever. Right, right. All right. So uh, let's continue with Trotsky. Sorry, George, I don't care if you're quote-unquote one of the good ones or not. (laughs) (laughs) The multiplicity of parties, the icy fever of elections, the interminable changes of ministries aggravated the social crisis by creating a kaleidoscope of barren political combinations. In the atmosphere brought to white heat by war, defeat, reparations, inflation, occupation of the Ruhr, crisis need and despair the petty bourgeoisie rode up rose up against all of the old parties that had had bamboozled them i.e the sharp grievances of small proprietors never out of bankruptcy of their university sons without posts and clients of their daughters without dowries and suitors demanded order and an iron hand and again, I'm just like, fuck, Trotsky. Oh, my God. I just want, I want to suck his dick right now, dude. Man, like, that's fucking, fucking amazing. Those 1900 millennials, you know, they just <laughs> weren't getting married and uh, couldn't find a job. And Yeah. Yeah. All these university sons without posts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were ruining Applebee's. 
Yeah. Yeah. How could they? How could they do that? <laughs> it's probably because they, they spent too much on Haas and Pfeffer and toast. That's what I think. Yeah. I get you every time, you know. <laughs> Less Stroop waffles, more saving, son. Come on. <laughs> The banner of National Socialism was raised by upstarts from the lower and middle commanding ranks of the old army. All right, a little bit off topic here, but fuck, man. What if you were like some dude that was just like, yeah, I'm going to save and take all this shit and I'm going to have so many German marks going my way. (laughs) And then like super inflation hits and you're just like, motherfucker. (laughs) I should have been out partying with flappers and buying booze and like... (laughs) well this is another thing that um i thought we should touch on a little bit more from last week which is that you know i don't want to be like a scold and be like you have to save your money and you shouldn't buy guns i'm saying that you should do like what jared is doing i'm not being a scold i'm just saying it's not a good idea (laughs) you probably shouldn't do that but what you're doing is playing into consumerism and you're making the ultra wealthy happy regardless but if you do like what Jared is doing and uh, spend it on like music lessons or, you know, if you're you want to oh, like <laughs> meet some people, you want to like, you know, sign up for a for a class or something like that. I think those are, you know, like good ways to kind of like, you know, build your own skills and, you know, abilities. Yeah. Well, update, I spent the other half of my stimulus check on a wood lathe. But you're going to build stuff with that, right? Like, you know, that's that's a skill set that you're developing. Yeah. You don't have a wood lathe already you know no no this one's like a nice delta rockwell one from like the 60s too so yeah and obviously pay your bills if you've got bills if you got creditors you know you gotta you gotta gotta pay those bills but oh no i wiped all that shit away yeah i don't know nobody nothing but i'm saying that the problem here is consumerism right definitely you know and boy it's a hard thing to break yourself of yeah and if you're gonna get twelve hundred dollars or fourteen hundred or whatever from the government just be like i'm gonna buy some shit dude you should really think about we're probably what you're six, buying. You we're know. probably getting six hundred again tops. Yeah, probably. I think they're gonna. I think they're gonna like uh, compromise, and everyone's just gonna get six hundred a month now. Employed, unemployed, just barely enough to not actually make it so that you could live on it. Right? Yeah. If you got six hundred dollars a month, you would. You couldn't pay rent. You couldn't even pay half your rent. You know? Well, that was the thing the first time they gave that to. That extra to the unemployed people, but I mean, that still mm. means you got to get a fucking job. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's what they're fucking terrified of. Yeah. Is that people are going to make more money not having a job than if they would going working minimum wage at fucking Home Depot or whatever. Right. Yeah. You know, and you know, the petty bourgeois specifically are the ones who are most terrified of that. Right. Oh, yeah. All right, let's continue. Um, unless you had, I don't know, do you have anything else you want to add on that, Jared? Um, just that uh, you know the government's here to help. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the banner of National Socialism was raised by upstarts from the lower and middle commanding ranks of the old army. Decorated with medals for distinguished service, commissioned and non-commissioned officers could not believe that their heroism and suffering for the fatherland had not only come to naught, but also gave them no special claims to gratitude. 
Fuck, they were the bonus army. Yeah, yeah. Oh, hey, we got to resettle my legions, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. They basically, we're they're just... Guys, <laughs> we're going to resettle you one of these days, okay? We're, yeah. You're going to get resettled. Trust me. They, they just felt like I felt after I fucking finally got out of college and was trying to get a job. Yeah. And I was just like, you know, I really... Uh, basically got lied to and fucked over here. <laughs> well, and, and this, here's what I think Trotsky alights on something important. So, um, these decorated veterans, uh, could not believe that their heroism and suffering, uh, gave them no special claims to gratitude. Hence their hatred of the revolution and the proletariat. At the same time, they did not want to reconcile themselves to being sent by the bankers, industrialists, and ministers back to the modest posts of bookkeepers, engineers, postal clerks, and school teachers. Of course not. Right. You know, I've always thought, like, how just, like, kind of sad is it that, like, we do fucking send these people over to war and then they come back and they're, like, veterans and, like, the best we can really do is, like, give them 15% off of their chicken fingers and, like... Oh, and a preference to get to get a horrible job before other people get the horrible job. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. you can get you can be the manager of Lowe's before mm. some other guy. But like yeah. And if you don't kill yourself before the age of retiring, you'll get VA benefits. But twenty two veterans, of course, kill themselves every day in America. Oh, it's down to less than one an hour? <laughs> it's around one an hour. And you know, Hey, that's that's the despair. That's that's what we're talking about right here, right? It's it's that. Um, well, dude, okay, I fucking I totally understand. If you're like over in the Middle East at war for fucking eighteen months, right? And you come back and you can't adjust. I mean, fuck, I get that. Right, but I also I went, I went is... on vacation to Mexico for two fucking weeks, and I had a hard time <laughs> adjusting to American life again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah like. What we talked about with military communalism, extremely powerful force to reckon with, you know. Um, well, shit, and, dude. Uh, just like living communally on the research projects that I worked on for like, you know, a few months at a time. Yeah. That made me not like not living that way when I came home. Yeah. Yeah. Um I, I do want to highlight one thing here, which is that hatred of the revolution and the proletariat. So the reason they hate the revolution and the proletariat is because they sacrificed and suffered and got nothing. Yeah. So why should other people worthy. get stuff? Right. And it's yeah. what you said, Jared was like, I sacrificed and suffered to get my, you know, two bachelor's degrees or my bachelor's degree and my master's degree for me. And I, I, I can't get anything with it. Like it's basically, I went into this debt, I worked my ass off and I got nothing to show for it. Yeah, and I got out of it, and I still think you shouldn't have to fucking do that. Right, and that's rare, though. You know? Well, that's everyone else's fucking problem. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, well, I mean, that's that same shit where people are like, well, aren't you happy that you got it paid off? And you're right. So and so, I mean, I just had this conversation. I fucking feel like I have this conversation mm -hmm. every day. But I just had this conversation with my mom today. She's like, well, so-and-so is going to be paying $700 a month until 2040 and like all this stuff. And doesn't that make you feel better about your situation? And I'm like, no, that's fucking gross. That makes me Terrible. feel awful about the situation in general. 
It was terrible when I did it. I sacrificed my ass off and got lucky that I got to live with my mom and grandma for fucking however long. Right. You know, but it wasn't a good life choice. It damaged my relationship with my family. It damaged my fucking mental health. It, you know, did a bunch of stuff. Well, and at the same time, you know, then you have to reconcile yourself with being, you know, sent back to the posts of bankers, industrialists, ministers, uh, bookkeepers, engineers, clerks, and for me, school teachers, right? For you, yeah. um, you know, you're, I don't know, you probably fit in there with the uh, postal clerks, I guess. I mean, fuck, you know, on paper, everything worked out for me. Right. Except for I hate my job. I don't see any alternative to it, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I mean, you know, I don't feel like I'm some privileged person, even though I very much am. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it was the same for all these people in the pooch, both in 1923 and in 2021. Right. And what Trotsky says is this is how you get to the quote unquote socialism, the sneer quote socialism of this shit, which is if someone comes along and says, uh, no, American identity is what gives you value and meaning. And your part of the national project is what's valuable. And if you support us, we'll make sure that you get to use that sustainability degree and you're working, you know, hard alongside your comrades in a classless society um, building a project that will last a thousand years and you're like, fuck, that sounds pretty good. Right. Well, I wouldn't say that, <laughs> but a lot of people would, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you know, better. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, well, with all due respect there, buddy, uh, <laughs> I've, and, uh, <laughs> and I've yeah, been and- promised, I've been promised better things by, you know, better con men. So, uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so the extent to which that excites you and honestly, the extent to which, you know, reading about the pooch in 1923 in our last episode, our last full episode excited you. That's the extent to which you should be concerned because it is powerful moonshine that they're selling, but it's moonshine. Yeah. I don't know. Do you, Okay. So, I mean, I've basically been fucked over, like, every single day since I've been born. Yeah. And maybe that, like, makes me have my worldview and everything, but, like, is everyone else not just getting, like, fucked over constantly? I think they are, man, but um, let's look at that phrase, Volksgemeinschaft, the ethnic popular community of people. Um, when I taught this in my environmental science class, I kind of explained it to my students as let's just say you work the front desk or the counter at a seven 11 and you understandably think your, your job is a shitty job and you don't care very much about it. The national socialist comes along and says, no seven 11 clerk, your job is just as important as the leader of Citibank, And they work hard every day of the week to support, you know, American freedom and our democracy that spreads slowly abroad um, and better enriching the lives of millions of people around the world, just like you do here at this 7-Eleven counter, because your job is just as important and you make the whole system run this glorious national project. And maybe that makes you feel a little bit better about your shitty job. But then they're like, and that's why now we're going to send you to the Eastern Front to do battle with the horrible communists and 
continue to spread nah. German greatness. And <laughs> now, nah. all right, mustache, buy something or get out. If I'm so fucking important as a CEO, why don't you pay me four million fucking dollars a month? That's the correct answer to that. Shit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now get if, your if money so fucking, fucking boots important. out of here. You smell like horse yeah. shit. Yeah. If if our business is a family, why why are you taking home you know whatever uh, four hundred thousand dollars a year in net profit and I make eighty thousand dollars a year as your primary employee? If our business is such a family, right? So, and honestly, when you hear that kind of talk, that that's that's Volkska Mineshaft. If your if your boss is saying we're really more of a family around this shop than a business, they're tr- they're trying to sucker you. They're trying to sell you that moonshine. See, and this is what I don't understand because basically, since I was like ten years old, I just pretty much assume everyone is full of shit. <laughs> I guess. And that, um, dude, especially if someone is like offering me something. Oh yeah. My initial reaction is okay. Well, this guy's trying to fuck me over. Uh, I better figure out pretty quick how and why, so I can like figure out how to get out of this. Well, <laughs> it took me so long to figure to get to the, get to there, man. But honestly, once I, think I that's did, why, I think that's why me and Helenerm got along so well. Yeah, I think that is. Yeah, <laughs> because I would just be like, come on. You're full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> Your job isn't that important. And yeah. he knew it. He did. Yeah, he, he totally did. I think, that's, I think that's yeah. why we got along and no one else got along with him. Yeah, he was the head of the department and he knew that he had the least important job there. And he that's probably why he did it. And, you know, if you can understand that and get past, oh, he's the head of the department. We got to be scared of him, which is the way I was when I was there. I was scared of him. But, yeah, you were right. And now that I understand that though. And I take that into any new interaction I have. I realize that when someone is trying to sell me something, I can be the snake, you know, I can be the the person who's like trying to shoot barbs and arrows yeah. and undermine. And the funny and thing fine. is usually like that type of guy is like somehow like dialectically also really susceptible to getting grifted himself. <laughs> yes. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you can just, you can really have fun with those people sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, don't know, uh, I always tell my, I always tell my friends, oh, be on the lookout for con men. <laughs> yeah. Just in general, just be on the oh, lookout. Especially for now. Him. Oh, my God. Especially oh, now. But always. Always. But yeah. Um, there's going to be a lot more con men in the next five years. Oh, 10 yeah. years. A lot more like years. serial killers, too, probably. Probably. Um, all right. So that's why they were against normal socialism, because they felt they had sacrificed whereas other people hadn't and they wanted to make sure that the people who deserved what they got got what they deserved. So, at the Iser and under Verdun, they had learned to risk themselves and others and to speak the language of command, which powerfully overawed the petty bourgeois behind the lines. Thus these people became leaders. And I think that's what you're talking about in terms of the, the people in this movement, this radical fringe right-wing movement today, have nothing on this shit because they weren't at Verdun getting constantly shelled for 24 hours with their, their you know, brothers in arms. I mean... That builds something in a person. <clears throat> not at Verdun. I mean, these motherfuckers, like... Some of them were, like, in Afghanistan, you know, right? Like... Uh, yeah, okay. Fine. But, but that's uh, not Verdun. If you're listening in Afghanistan, I bet you would have rather been there than ever done. If you're an American. 
if yeah, you're an not Af- if you're an if Afghani. You're, if you're an Afghani, yeah, yeah, maybe I could have a little more sympathy. Well, for Afghani's, you basically are at Verdun, right? Because well, yeah, it's just America I'm, shelling you. Yeah, that's what time. I mean. Like, <laughs> it's fucked up. It's incredibly yeah. fucked up. Too. I mean, there you go. That's that. There you go. The Capitol Hill riot is the aggressor acting like a fucking victim. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. At the start of his political career, Hitler stood out only because of his big temperament, a voice much louder than others, and an intellectual mediocrity much more self-assured. Hell yeah. (laughs) Dunning-Kruger, dude. He's the man. He did not bring into the movement any ready-made program if one disregards the insulted soldier's thirst for vengeance. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That was his only program. Didn't bring into it. Did he even like ever bring much into it? I mean, I mean, no. Besides, Again, like it was the besides Mein Kampf, but like, yeah, which is just thirst for vengeance. That's the whole of Mein Kampf. It's just vengeance. Uh, I actually had to read that, oh, yeah. and uh, I really don't, really don't like writers that are. Uh, it takes some like you know, a paragraph to say what they could say in half a sentence. Mm-hmm. And that shit's all over Mein Kampf. And it's the exact opposite with Trotsky. We're like one totally sentence of Trotsky says yeah. a million different things. And you're just like, holy that, fuck. that first sentence said like four different ideas blended together. Mm-hmm. It's, it it's beautiful. beautiful writing. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read much Trotsky, but I mean, damn, I like I like William Faulkner. Like I like his stories. Yeah, but I I don't like his writing style. Hemingway, I'm much more fond of for that. Yeah, but I think Faulkner's got the better stories. Yeah, um, but uh, he does that incessantly. Where like Mm -hmm. I don't know, he literally would just go off on a tangent for like two and a half paragraphs, which is ironic because that's sort of my podcasting style. No one said I like myself, so. (laughs) Hitler began with grievances and complaints about the Versailles terms, the high cost of living, the lack of respect for a meritorious non-commissioned officer, and the plots of bankers and journalists of the Mosaic persuasion. Here, Trotsky saying Jewish, of the Jewish persuasion. <laughs> the mosaic persuasion moses yeah of moses's persuasion. oh okay yeah wait is that the root of that word i think so oh you mean like mosaic like the collage that yeah. i don't know i'm not sure is that a all right never mind but yeah I, and again trotsky basically it's the same thing that trump did instead of versailles terms it's the trade terms between china and you know nafta nations uh, the high cost of living, same, same. Um, but once again, like the Versailles thing is a very real negative thing. Yeah. The trade deals. Less the opposite. So. Yeah. Yeah. We um, rely on China to make money. Right. We're not giving them money. But also uh, the lack of respect for meritorious officers. They're disrespecting our police. Um. The plots of, yeah, Jewish bankers and Jewish journalists. Again, that's just one for one right there. I mean, take out the Jewish part, and I mean, I kind of agree with that point. <laughs> yeah, bankers and journalists 
I mean, they are in cahoots, you know, not, big not liberal good, media. Folks. Yeah. But it has nothing to do with Judaism. Um, no, not at all. Or, excuse me, there were in the country plenty of ruined and drowning people with scars and fresh bruises. And I think that is absolutely true today. They all I mean, wanted to go to any of like the opioid epidemic places. Right. And it's probably worse. They have literal scars and fresh bruises. Yeah. Um, uh, they all wanted to thump with their fists on the table. This Hitler could do better than others. True. He knew not how to cure the evil, but his harangues resounded now like commands and now like prayers addressed to inexorable fate. Doomed classes, like those fatally ill, never tire of making variations of their plaints, nor of listening to consolations. Hitler's speeches were all attuned to this pitch. Sentimental formlessness, absence of disciplined thought, ignorance along with gaudy erudition. All these minuses turned into pluses. They supplied him with the possibility of uniting all types of dissatisfaction in the beggar's bowl of National Socialism and of leading the mass in the direction in which it pushed him. In the mind of the agitator was preserved from among his early improvisations whatever had met with approbation. His political thoughts were the fruits of oratorical <clears throat> acoustics. That is how the selection of slogans went on. That is how the program was consolidated. That is how the quote-unquote leader took shape out of raw material. Trotsky says it beautifully, but for just common language, let me just say, the slogans that worked, the slogans that got people excited and drew, drew applause, that's what became the program. Hitler was just there throwing shit at the wall, and when it stuck, and he was like, all right, they really get excited for anti-Semitism, he seamlessly integrated that into himself you know <clears throat> i was gonna say that the only reason that worked is because we didn't have cameras but uh we did that would cameras. be that would be <laughs> ignoring no no no. i mean like video cameras oh yeah but i think no, the they... last i think the last about year and a half has <laughs> changed right. my mind about that yeah yep um dude okay how pissed do you think Hitler would be if he, like, could somehow know how easy Trump got elected? Oh, my gosh. I mean... Because say what you want. Hitler was fucking trying. Yeah. Yeah. And Trump, Trump's candidacy Trump was, not, was, like, yeah. an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, that's again, why I say the the cause for concern. Right. It's I'm, not I'm starting, that Trump was such a fascist. I'm starting to get less concerned. Yeah. I think. Because, Just because okay. of the vacuum of leadership or what? I mean. Well, okay. I mean, say we did have literally Adolf Hitler instead of Donald Trump. I like, think he'd be wildly popular. I mean, I think he'd, yeah, be, he'd, be he'd amazing do better in America at, today than he ever did in Germany in the 1930s. He'd do way better than Trump. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> this Hitler? Like, I've lived in Iowa and South Dakota my whole life. Yeah. Half of my family would fucking love this. Are you kidding me? 
And that's why I think it's so you important. You get to go down, we, get yeah. wasted, and listen to this guy say, like, the most hateful and racist shit possible. And then the next week, he only yes. says the parts yes. where everyone clapped. Mm-hmm. Hitler's literally doing fucking stand-up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He's literally going out there, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, cutting mm-hmm. the shit that doesn't work, and then punching it up next week. Yeah. And then adding fucking three more tags. Yes. This dude is, everybody, everybody says that, you know, uh, Lenny Bruce, like, revolutionized stand-up. I think people are sleeping on Hitler, man. Seriously, though, that's what he is. He's traveling yeah. around the country oh, yeah. doing this and, you know. Well, and, and that's why I think it's so important to like look at the actual stuff that he's saying. Like, look at what look at what he was doing, and then we can say like like what's the appeal here? Like, why is this? What part of like the human id is this? What do you mean? Made? What's the appeal? We know the appeal. We can see it right here, right? The appeal is that he is saying what people are thinking, right? You know, right or wrong. I mean. I don't it's know. It's not a good thing. It's, it's not, not a good thing. thing. Yeah. Not at all. <clears throat> There's a reason that we don't just like say all of our thoughts. <laughs> well, I'm starting to just let rip with pretty much whatever lately. No. And I don't know. People all like right. it. Uh, <clears throat> well, yeah, you're on the podcast. I mean, in real life, too. <laughs> People like it. Yeah. You know, fuck, everybody's like so zoned out and ignoring each other and trying not to talk to strangers so much that like when I come in and I'm just mm-hmm. like somebody's at Casey's, they're like, would you like to donate or round up to the next dollar to donate to the military? And I'm like, hell no, those crooks got enough money. Yeah. You know, People I think laugh it's... sometimes, you know, <laughs> I think and that's it exactly is... what I think. Hell no. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I think it's like what we started out our podcast with, with our critique of science. It's like that this, t- this process can be used for good or ill, right? Well, I mean, it's yeah, about dude. Intent. It's a tool. It is a tool. Yeah. That's, you know, you can use a knife to fucking cut uh, plastic loose from some bird. Or you yeah. can fucking use a knife to rob and kill somebody. Yeah. Same knife. Mm-hmm. Um. But, yes, let's continue. Mussolini, Jared's El Duce, his uh, historical figure. <laughs> wait, okay, we didn't record any of that stuff I was talking oh, about. Oh, right. <laughs> or wait, no, we did. No, about we that. did, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Mussolini, from the very beginning, reacted more consciously to social materials than Hitler, to whom the police mysticism of a Metternich is much closer than the political algebra of Machiavelli. And Trotsky's making some historical allusions here to various political thinkers of European tradition. Not important. Um, Mussolini would have most certainly known about Machiavelli, though. Right, right. Uh, Mussolini is mentally bolder and more cynical. It may be said that the Roman atheist only utilizes religion as he does the police and the courts. Well, his Berlin colleague really believes in the infallibility of the Church of Rome. Interesting. I've always uh, 
I've always thought that uh, <clears throat> Mussolini was much smarter than Hitler, um, which I think yeah. is kind of ironic since, I mean, shit didn't go well for Italy and Hitler like supremely looked down on Mussolini. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I think Hitler hated Mussolini more than he hated the Turks. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of a byproduct of fascism too which is that uh you really can't have a true alliance it's always based on mutual spite well i mean and you can't even gonna... have friends <laughs> you can't have yeah you, you don't can't. have like real friends you don't have like like hitler and ava braun weren't fucking in love mm. you just uh the way you see the world like precludes you from having human relationships with other people with the environment with machines even yeah like yeah. it's i don't it it's it's crazy how crazy it is yeah it is <laughs> uh well and interestingly with mussolini also started out as a marxist as a socialist which trotsky points out here um during well, like the time I, like i was saying man socialists can be the best conservatives if they just have the heart for it right if they i mean <clears throat> oh was it Angela Nagel who wrote that Kill All the Normies book? Oh, yeah. Zero she did books the, published. And then she did the heel turn. She flipped to the right. Yeah. All right. Well, Angela Nagel makes me have to use the restroom. So, okay. Likewise. Let's, let's pause. <laughs> All right. His name's like John Berman or something like that. Steve Berman. I don't know. I think okay. Steve Berman's an ESPN dude. But, uh, yeah. So, so dude, um, Silver Jews, Purple Mountains, good music. All right. Guy killed so himself. <laughs> we, we both did a Jared just then. What's that? We both got the jump on Trotsky and did what he was about to say. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, speaking of Mussolini, during the time when the future Italian dictator considered Marx as our common immortal teacher, he defended, not unskillfully, the theory which sees in the life of contemporary society, first of all, the reciprocal action of two classes, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Another way of saying the capitalist and the worker, the owner and the laborer. True, Mussolini wrote in 1914, there lie between them very numerous intermediate layers, which seemingly form a joining web of the human collective. But during periods of crisis, the intermediate classes gravitate, depending upon their interests and ideas, to one or the other of the basic classes, the proletariat or the bourgeoisie. A very important generalization, Trotsky notes. Just as scientific medicine equips one with the possibility not only of curing the sick, but of sending the health healthy to meet their forefathers by the shortest route. So the scientific analysis of class relations, predestined by its creator for the mobilization of the proletariat, enabled Mussolini, after he had jumped into the opposing camp, to mobilize the middle classes against the proletariat. Hitler accomplished the same feat in translating the methodology of fascism into the language of German mysticism. Man, it's really no wonder that uh, Stalin took over and not Trotsky. 
Trotsky was too beautiful. I mean, <laughs> he was he was writing this stuff at a time where the average Russian peasant, yeah, literally couldn't read. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, one of the big developments of the Soviet Union was that literacy increased dramatically. So, um, this, I mean, this was sure. around the time period it was shifting, right? Sure. I'm just saying, uh, Trotsky might be a bit of a brain lord here. Yeah. But yeah. Not enough to realize that he is just talking so far over the heads of the people that he's trying to reach that it's not even funny. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a problem that I have. Um, you know, I, 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 tr- I always have to work on it. You know, I think everyone does, but we can appreciate it for what it is. Oh yeah, I definitely. Yeah. The bonfires, which burn the impious literature of Marxism light up brilliantly. The class nature of national socialism. While the Nazis acted as a party and not as a state power. They did not quite find an approach to the working class. On the other side, the big bourgeoisie, even those who supported Hitler with their money, did not consider his party theirs. The national renaissance, quote-unquote, leaned wholly upon the middle classes, the most backward part of the nation, the heavy ballast of history. Oh, that line. They, They truly are the heavy ballast of history. What is heavy ballast? It's like when you put a bag of lead shot in the front of the canoe to hold it down because you can't get someone to paddle for you. Dead That's weight. what the middle class is. They're the dead weight of history. <laughs> Ballast is dead weight. And it's, it's so true. It really is. I mean, um, it really is when you consider that like, you know, in an emergency, the first thing you get rid of is the ballast. Right. And that's, yeah what's being getting rid of right now during this economic emergency. Yeah. Political art consisted in fusing the petty bourgeoisie into oneness through its common hostility to the proletariat. What must be done in order to improve things? First of all, throttle those who are underneath impotent before big capital. The petty bourgeoisie hopes in the future to regain its social dignity through the ruin of the workers. Well, that became like the national project of Germany. I mean, isn't that the national project of America right now? <sighs> maybe, Let me take this from an environmental maybe perspective. Rhetorically. Let me take this from an environmental perspective, okay? All the people out there who work in restoration ecology, right? These PMC type people, they only have a job because the ultra wealthy destroy the environment at such an alarming rate yeah as such their their only hope of having material wealth of using the careers that they've worked so hard to earn is dependent upon the ruin of the environment which sustains well all life not just the workers but i mean that's that's the type of dynamic there right yeah the sick thing is uh they literally are saving the environment but they're saving it from the people that typically are funding them yeah 
The but Nazis. You know how everybody wants to save the environment, but no one is no one is really like, well, what are we saving it from? Right. Yeah. You just got to save it. Mm hmm. But, you know, oil companies never come into the never come into the matter and the mainstream political discourse, it seems like. Well, it's all consumer choice. The oil company right. can't help that there's so much demand for oil. Right. But again, it's consumer choice. It's not a real choice. It's like, do you want coal based energy or do you want natural gas based energy? And I'm like, well, because if you want green energy, you're fucked, bud. Sorry. You know, you're not going to have anything. Hey, diesel fuels green. <laughs> kind of. Well, even green energy still has these types of byproducts. The whole, but again, I mean, if you go down this this rabbit hole, you just end up saying the whole system of production is leading to to this this ruin that Trotsky's writing about. Nah, you should just blame yourself for using plastic bags. <laughs> the Nazis call their overturn by the usurped title of revolution. They took it from us. Okay. As a matter of fact, in Germany as well as Italy, fascism leaves the social system untouched. And that's a critical point. It doesn't actually change the way the power strata works. Taken by itself, Hitler's overturn has no right. Yeah, it really doesn't, does it? It kind of just alters how viciously the lower classes are treated. Yeah, but it doesn't change where they fit into the scheme of things. And... You know, German fascism is a great example because who was the primary benef- beneficiary of German fascism? It was German industrialism, right? It was the Mengele machinery company. Again, Joseph Mengele, one of the most horrible uh, Nazi race doctors, basically. But he was, you know, from a wealthy family of who owned a machine manufacturing company yeah, that still s- exists today. You can still buy Mengele tractors. Yes. And so, yeah, uh, it doesn't that change is, the way things work. That is not a DLC on Farm Simulator. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it just reaffirms. Instead of, they, they call it a classless society, but any, if anything, it cements and hardens your position. And well, no, they might be right about that. I mean, it's more of a caste system almost. Sure, yeah. Because you are not getting up a level in fascism. No. You can go down, but you cannot go up. Right. Taken by itself, Hitler's overturn has no right even in the name of counter-revolution. But it cannot be viewed as an isolated event. It is the conclusion of a cycle of shocks which began in Germany in 1918 at the end of World War I. The November Revolution, which gave power to the workers and the peasant Soviets was proletarian in its fundamental tendencies. But the party that stood at the head of the proletariat returned the power to the bourgeoisie. In this sense, the social democracy opened the era of counter-revolution before the revolution could bring its work to completion. That's their working with the Fry Corps, right? Well, even that rings true mm-hmm. to what's going on today. Because... They had, wasn't there like a major financial crisis in 88? Yep. There was a major one in 2000. There was a major one in 08. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stock market hasn't quite caught on yet, but there is a major shrinking of the economy right now. 
Yeah. Oh, when that Tesla bubble bursts, holy shit, dude. I don't think that can happen. You don't think it'll burst? I think it should. I don't think it can. You think they're too big to fail now because of just yeah. because of how dumb investors are, basically. Well, not even in, I mean, how just invested the federal government is in yeah. Tesla working out. If you look at count, Joe Biden's speeches, right? Yeah. All that electric car bullshit. Mm-hmm. Well, especially if you include like the green energy wing of the little Elon Musk portfolio. Yeah. I mean, that like all of it is just being propped up by the one side is being propped up by investors and the other side is being propped up by the federal government. So, And it all got started out with that fascist apartheid money. Well, you're not <laughs> supposed to ask where these people got their money from, James. Oh, man. That, yeah, is, not, no, <laughs> that is not the right question. My bad, my bad. <laughs> He got okay. a small loan of only a handful of emeralds, all right? <laughs> However, okay, so in this sense, the social democracy opened the era of counter-revolution before the revolution could bring its work to completion. However, so long as the bourgeoisie depended upon the social democracy and consequently upon the workers, the regime retained elements of compromise. All the same, the international and the internal situation of German capitalism left no more room for concessions. As social democracy saved the bourgeoisie from proletarian revolution, fascism came in its turn to liberate the bourgeois from social democracy. Hitler's coup is only the final link in the chain of counter-revolutionary shifts. And that's why you see so much hatred of the quote-unquote SJW, in these camps today. The petty bourgeois is hostile to the idea of development for development goes immutably against him. And if you look at thousands of small towns across America, you see, okay, this. I'm just going to tie this back to my own life. Yeah. Um, my boss, the way we operate is that we want to own all of the equipment even if it doesn't necessarily make sense <laughs> to have other people pay us to use yeah. our equipment. Um, my boss is pretty hostile to the idea that I like own a vehicle and basically he doesn't like that. I own a pickup and a trailer that I can use yeah. to make money for myself. Yeah. Yeah. That development is, he views as hostility. Yeah. He doesn't like that I own my own tools. Well, I always think back to, you know, living in Vermilion and how the, the city council was just absolutely hostile to new development in that city. And I think you see it in a lot of small towns in particular. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you see it in the fucking third world, like the most acutely. Yeah. Yeah. Development is just not allowed. Right. Because that would fundamentally challenge the capitalists back in, you know, America and Europe. Yeah. Right. If cap if the base of capital moved from London to, um, you know, uh, Durban, even it would yeah. be traumatic to to Europe. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's literally it. You know, people <laughs> they cannot be allowed to have their own means of production. And it's about power. Yeah. 
my boss really doesn't like that he basically has no power over me anymore. Yeah. Well, and, and that's why I'm not in student loan debt. Yeah. I don't have medical bills. <laughs> like I own a vehicle. I don't live paycheck to paycheck anymore. That's a yeah. bad deal if you're an employer. And, and this hostility to development also explains why this type of person is so hostile to science. Okay. National socialism rejects not only Marxism, but Darwinism. Darwinism being the theory of evolution. The Nazis curse materialism because the victories of technology over nature have signified the triumph of large capital over small. The leaders of the movement are liquidating quote-unquote intellectualism because they themselves possess second- and third-rate intellects, and above all because their historic role does not permit them to pursue a single thought to its conclusion. Yeah. Good, good heavens. Don't, yeah, don't think about what things are going to look like five years from now. That would be the worst possible thing you could do, right? Yeah. Survival of the fittest without reading The Descent of Man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Invisible Hand of the Market without actually reading exactly. Adam Smith. Exactly. There's Fucking that slogan it. again mm-hmm. that is twisted to mean the opposite of what it actually means. Yeah. The petty bourgeois isn't, needs a- isn't thinking fun. <laughs> It's great. (laughs) It got Trotsky an ice pick in the back of the head. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, thank God no one has a fucking ice pick around here. I've been pissing some people off lately. (laughs) The petty bourgeois needs a higher authority, which stands above matter and above history, and which is safeguarded from competition, inflation, crisis and the auction block and that, no of course, is no the state. no what do you mean competition that's that's that thing we like that's what no, we try to facilitate they say they like it but they actually don't like it because that represents a development it's a threat to their power that's why Obviously. we have monopolies right yeah that's why there's all these monopolies what? around that's what you're talking about that's why the u.s hated the soviet yeah. union yeah exactly competition Maybe in the market, we're not going to let anything Mm, compete with the idea of marketizing everything. Right. That might be dangerous because this might not work that well. Now, for evolution, materialist thought, and rationalism, the 20th, 19th, and 18th centuries, those are the big, like, for Trotsky, those are the big developments. It's evolution, materialism, and rationalism. Yeah, people were having all kinds of fun thinking then. Yes. Now, for the National Socialist, those ideas are counterposed in their mind with national idealism as the source of heroic inspiration. So Hitler's nation is the mythological shadow of the petty bourgeois itself, a pathetic delirium of a thousand-year Reich. And again... Trotsky's writing this in 1933. This is before World War II kicks off. This is before the concentration camps. This is before all that shit goes down. But it seems like he could be writing it in retrospect yesterday. But he's in it. He's in it. So much of this is just, and so much of me is just talking about my dad. 
<laughs> Trotsky to an extent is, you know, he's kind of doing that. He's from like one of these petty bourgeois kind of reactionary people. Yeah. Right? He's seen yeah. what goes on on a small scale. Mm-hmm. And then he went out into the wider world and he's like, holy shit. That's that thing that happened when I was like nine. Yeah. And what the fuck, dude? That happened when I was like 14. Right. Yeah. So uh, how do you raise a people above history, a nation above history? In order to raise Germany above history, the nation is given the support of the race. History is viewed as the emanation of the race. And of course, this is what people do all the time with Judaism, right? Like the people is its history in a sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, Israel is doing this right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The qualities of the race are construed without relation to changing social conditions. They're timeless. Rejecting quote-unquote economic thought as a base, National Socialism descends a stage lower. From economic materialism, it appeals to zoological materialism, which actually ties in with our comp- or our Forget About the Alamo series. It's just the great chain of being. They're just falling back to that, you know, white people are above, you know, black people or white people are above, you know, Southern European people are above, you know, North African people are above Sub-Saharan people. You know, it's just that bullshit hierarchy. Yes, but human life is most certainly more precious than the life of a snail. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) I mean... I was like, will, will I commit to never eat escargot again? And I was like, no, I'm going to eat Fuck some escargot. No. <laughs> yeah. So the theory of race specially created, it seems, for some pretentious self-educated individual seeking a universal key to all the secrets of life, which is basically the definition Talking of Talking about himself. <laughs> <laughs> so this appears particularly melancholy in light of the history of ideas. In order to create the religion of pure German blood, Hitler was obliged to borrow at second hand the ideas of racism from a Frenchman. Um, Hitler found the political methodology ready-made in Italy by Mussolini. Well, I mean... <clears throat> where he had borrowed from class struggle of Marxism. Not only that, but, I mean, all this blood stuff, we were talking about this in the Alamo episode. Yeah. Everyone in Germany at this time... Like their parents grew up in the Prussian empire. Right. But what Trotsky, where everyone was really concerned about what blood you had. But what Trotsky's saying is that if you actually are willing to investigate the genealogy of these ideas, where do these ideas of blood and racism come from? And where do these ideas of national greatness come from? If you're going to look at where they come from feudalism, Well, what he's saying is that even the most reactionary and muddle-headed reactions to looking at the origins of idea is to leave not a trace of racism standing. If you actually are going to do a real analysis of where do ideas come from, you have to fundamentally reject racism. Because if you're moving it into the range of saying, let's look at the material root of ideas, you have to throw out the idea that there's anything particularly special about one group of people or another. superior 
Right. That yeah, you're right. That there's not because of course the environment still leads to differences in culture, right? And so there are differences, but there is no inherent superiority or inferiority because you have to to be an objective investigator. You can't assume that. You're right. Good good point. I guess. <clears throat> What am I trying to say here? Um, the concept that <clears throat> someone's blood might bestow certain properties upon them mm-hmm. seems to me to be not something that the average like 70-year-old German at this time would be unfamiliar with. Right. Yeah, that's the German mysticism that Trotsky is referring to, right? This, this national sentiment built up by, you know, the stories of the battle of the Teutonberg forest and, you know, uh, the, the, uh, Prussian arrival at Waterloo, you know, to support, um, Wellington's forces, that kind of thing. Right. German exceptionalism. Yeah. That heroic mysticism, that German exceptionalism, basically comes in there and replaces the material grounds of ideas and lets you do racism essentially. Yeah. You don't have well, to guess... think about where these things came from. You can just say it's cause we're better. Oh, okay. He's saying the fascists don't have to think about where they came from. Yes. Yes. Exactly. I thought he was saying like, we don't have to think about where, they Oh no, no, no. From. He's saying we need to, we we think about the origins of ideas. They don't. They just say it's superiority. Gotcha. It's German gotcha. mysticism. Yes, okay. Yes. Okay. I'm saying that all of that shit comes from like feudalism and absolutely. Yes, <laughs> you're totally right about that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we're on the same and, page. <laughs> and Trotsky's right there with you. So, and in fact, again, we we jumped the gun on him a little bit there. So, on the plane of politics. Racism. I've is been a, jumping the gun my entire <laughs> fucking life, and you know what? It I'm not, works yeah, out. It's fine. <laughs> it works out most of the time. <clears throat> so, on the plane of politics, racism is a vapid and bombastic variety of chauvinism in alliance with phrenology. Of course, Jared mentioned phrenology <laughs> in our first episode. Emphasis on bombastic. Yeah, which in phrenology. If you don't know, it's basically, yeah, feeling your skull and determining character traits so, based on your physiology. I got a little self-conscious about the claims I was making about getting a degree in phrenology. And yeah. uh, I think I said in the 19th century. Yeah. <clears throat> but just in case, uh, phrenology did make a resurgence in like the 1920s and 30s. And you could obtain a degree in South America in oh. phrenology. In Argentina? Um, yes, yes. In Argentina and Brazil. Um, also, the last like known practicer of phrenology died in, like, oh man, 2009? Well, hold on, though, because phrenology is making a big comeback with like the incel movements and stuff, right? Well, 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 but this there's not... chauvinism. No, no, no. I'm talking about like Jordan B. Peterson level right. people okay. of phrenology. Um, shit, I should have known this, but like the last, I think he was a priest in Argentina in South America somewhere. The last Catholic priest who was like the evangelical of phrenology died in like 
It was like 99 or 09. The dude lived to be 99 years old. Dang, he must have had a good skull. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he would have loved that joke. (laughs) Okay, so he died in 99 because he was born in 1900 and he died in 1999. And I was like, just... uh, I don't know, man. I've always been like a pretty staunch believer that like the more evil you are, the older you will live. Mm, yeah. We've talked about this before, how it's so Have preservative. Yep. yep. I think so, man. Yeah. Because I don't know. The oldest person for my family was also the meanest person. <laughs> um, <laughs> and just, I don't know. So many of these old, just fucking ghouls live yeah. to be like 102 years old. So, uh, yeah, racism, vapid and bombastic in the political arena in particular. As the ruined nobility sought solace in the gentility of its blood. There's that blood again for you. Yeah. So the Well, I mean, so, all these fucking, all these ruined nobility. Right. They're just fucking cavalrymen from the Prussian Empire. Literally, they're like the fucking great great grandson of this guy that sacrificed himself at like mm-hmm. I don't know the Battle of Douchebags between <laughs> the Prussian Empire and fucking Denmark. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, in the rim job forest. Yeah, and that's <laughs> that. That's the the gen- the solace in in the gentility of your blood even though your family doesn't have any money anymore you're like i'm still a prince damn it so yeah what the nobility viewed as the gentility of its blood it's the same with racism with the petty bourgeoisie it befuddles itself with fairy tales concerning the special superiorities of its race specifically german anglo-saxon white people worthy of attention is the fact that the leaders of national socialism are not native germans but interlopers from austria like hitler himself from the former baltic provinces of the czar's empire like rosenberg one of hitler's adjutants and from colonial countries like hess who is hitler's present alternate for leadership i feel like right now though uh race has been like (laughs) subsumed by like gumption sure yeah a little bit by the you know by the nationalism of it right it, it's like with what happened at the capitol I, i'm trying to remember i saw some like shirt about well like, i guess Ameri- I, I saw a shirt it said american supremacist it's like we're not white supremacists we're american supremacists which yeah. happens to be white supremacy right well but what i mean is that i feel like race has taken a back seat to like hard workingness or like has it though or is that the cell well i don't know man i mean i i feel Let, like we we what... don't we don't think that we're necessarily better than other countries because of or whiteness anymore necessarily i think we feel like we're better than them because you know we're more productive we're harder working we put a man on the moon we i see what you're saying have a guy that used his emerald fortune to put a car into orbit but you just hit on the 
on the thing there, which is that racism is still run throughout this system. Sure. I feel like that's the quiet part now, though. That used to be the loud part. Um, let's let's uh, continue. I think I think Trotsky might weigh in, maybe. So yeah, a barbarous din of nationalisms on the frontiers of civilization was required in order to instill into its leaders those ideas which later found response in the hearts of the most barbarous classes of Germany. So, personality and class, which is to say liberalism and Marxism, are evil. The nation is good. But at the threshold of private property, this philosophy is turned inside out. Salvation lies only in personal private property. The idea of national property is the spawn of Bolshevism. Deifying the nation, the petty bourgeois does not want to give it anything. On the contrary, he expects the nation to endow him with property and to safeguard him from the worker and the process server. Unfortunately, the Third Reich will bestow nothing upon the petty bourgeois except new taxes. Which they did. All right, well. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. (laughs) In the sphere of modern economy, international in its ties and anonymous in its methods, the principle of race seems unearthed from a medieval graveyard. The Nazis set out with concessions beforehand. The purity of race, which must be certified in the kingdom of the spirit by a passport, must be demonstrated in the sphere of economy chiefly by efficiency. And there's the gumption you were talking about. Under contemporary conditions, this means competitive capacity. So it's the same thing I was saying, I guess. Our race is better not because of our race, but because of our production. Right. So under contemporary conditions, this means competitive capacity. Through the back door, racism returns to economic liberalism, freed from political liberties, which is, you know, things like redlining, right? And um, the the uh, rates of college admissions and whatever. The examples are too numerous to cite. Well, right? no, we're talking about Nazis here, not the American. <laughs> but the system promulgates racism. That's the problem. And so... You can't, you know, through your high-minded idealism, avoid that when the productive the productive forces necessitate. <laughs> For more info on that, consult Plato. Yeah. Did you cut out that part where I like shit on Plato on one of our episodes, like the clean water ones? I probably, I don't know. I, I have to. Some stuff I'm just like it's a little bit too in the weeds. I don't know. Oh, okay. I I'm going to edit this part out. <laughs> oh, fuck that. At some point, I'm going to be on tape talking shit about Plato because fuck that guy. All right. <laughs> Him and Confucius. Fuck both of those dudes. So nationalism in the economy, not in the you know headspace, but in real economics, comes down in practice to impotent, though savage, outbursts of anti-Semitism. And honestly, I think we can just sub in, you know, um, police violence towards uh, black people and the handicapped. I think all of that is economic nationalism, an outburst of it. Speaking like strictly economically, too, it's the same thing functionally as a tariff. Yeah, it is. 
It is. It reminds, uh, it reinforces the, the power of the central authority. Oh, I'm sorry, you broke out there, Jared. Oh, sorry, I was saying that's why classical economists were completely against tariffs and anything that resemble them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, so they uh, lead, the Nazis... They lead to this type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, so the Nazis abstract the usurious or banking capital from the modern economic system because it is of the spirit of evil. And like Trotsky's like, well, yeah. And as is well known, it is precisely in this sphere that the Jewish bourgeoisie occupies an important position here. He's saying it's an unfortunate coincidence, right? Yeah. That's why the petty bourgeois bows down before capitalism as a whole but declares war against the evil spirit of gain in the guise of the Polish Jew and the Middle Eastern Muslim. Usually, these people are poor. They're not actually the ones doing the usury and the banking capital. But yet, the pogrom, the you know campaign of racial terror against Jews, the pogrom becomes the supreme evidence of racial superiority. Because we go there and we kick their asses. So uh, here, here Trotsky tells a Jewish joke. And I want to make it clear this is Trotsky's joke, not mine. He's being a little bit of a Mel Brooks. Oh, I thought you were going to say Trotsky, not Slavoj. <laughs> <laughs> so the program with which National Socialism came to power in Germany reminds one very much, alas, of a Jewish department store in an obscure province. What won't you find here? Cheap in price and in quality still lower. Everything is everything is cheap and it's even of <laughs> poorer quality. That's what national socialism is. So you have recollections right. of the you have recollections of the happy days of free competition and hazy evocations of the stability of class society. Hopes for the regeneration of the colonial empire and dreams of a shut-in economy, phrases about a return from Roman law back to the Germanic, and pleas for an American moratorium, an envious hostility to inequality in the person of the proprietor in an automobile, an animal fear of equality in the person of a worker in a cap and without a collar, the frenzy of nationalism and the fear of world creditors, all the refuse of international political thought has gone to fill up the spiritual treasury of the new Germanic mess- messianism. Trotsky maybe could use an editor on that one. That was pretty, pretty. Yeah. Funny. But, yeah. Come on, Trotsky. Hitler is everything <laughs> to everyone. <laughs> right? Yeah. Basically. That's what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Like Hitler is a mirror. Yeah. <clears throat> so fascism has opened up the depths of society for politics. Today, not only in the peasant homes, but also in the city skyscrapers, there lives alongside the 20th century, the 10th and the 13th. A hundred million people use electricity and still believe in the magic power of signs and exorcisms. The Pope of Rome broadcasts over the radio about the miraculous transformation of water into wine. Movie stars go to mediums. 
aviators who pilot miraculous mechanisms created by man's genius wear amulets on their sweaters. What inexhaustible reserves they possess of darkness, ignorance, and savagery. Despair has raised them to their feet. Fascism has given them a banner. Everything that should have been eliminated from the national organism in the form of cultural excrement in the course of the normal development of society has now come gushing out from the throat. Capitalist society is puking up the undigested barbarianism. Such is the physiology of national socialism. And Trotsky's right back on the on bat there. Like, oof, yes. <laughs> Capitalist society is puking up the undigested barbarism. That's it. That's it, guys. What do you think? <laughs> I had something. Like, something he said right at the beginning struck a nerve. Nearly. And then I forgot by the end. Fascism has opened up the depths of society for politics. There lives alongside the 20th century, the 10th. Yep, a hun- that one. A hundred million people use electricity. And no, that one right there. Science. Okay. There lives at the same time this century, the 10th and the 13th. A hundred million people use electricity. Yeah. Um. God, now what, it's... what is the like analog to that right now? Um. Two billion people have smartphones. Right. That uh, technology is not... And still believe in the power of symbols and amulets. Trotsky, without even knowing it, I think, is saying technology is not going to fix this. No. Yeah. (sighs) That's the part that stuck in my craw. Yeah. It's, it's, It's absolutely right. How can you... How can you complain about the state of the world when you have a 70-inch LCD and a smartphone? Yeah. And what he's saying is that all the things that we should that we should have shit out through normal development instead because of um because of capitalist production have instead gotten caught in the interior yeah. and we and instead now we're doing violence again. Yeah, and I don't I don't know if this is what he's saying, but I'm saying all of the worst fucking things yeah. make money. Mm-hmm. That's why they exist. They don't exist because they're good or even because anybody fucking wants them. Right. They exist because they make money. Yeah. Climate change is a problem because people got to make a lot of money. God damn, is it profitable? Yeah. 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 German fascism, it was profitable for some people. Mm hmm. Very profitable. So, German fascism, like Italian fascism, raised itself to power on the backs of the petty bourgeoisie, which it turned into a battering ram against the organizations of the working class and the institutions of democracy. Well,. Small businesses are the backbone of the American economy. <laughs> Did you know or are that? Or the backbone of the battery. Did you know that? Have you heard class? that? Have you heard that every day of your life? <laughs> yeah, from Democrats and Republicans alike, right? That's oh, yeah. that's the other thing I wanted to bring up in this, is that you see a lot of this shit on the quote-unquote 
I'm not even going to call it left, the center side of American politics as well. What do you, what do you want to say? Democrats? Yeah. I'm Fucking just saying, Democrats. like, don't. There's no such thing as the left. Right. So, uh, but fascism and power. Us is, and, like, all of the podcasts anyone listens to. Yeah. That claim to be left. No. They don't matter. Right. At all. If they did matter. It. 1912, <laughs> the Reichstag, the Socialist Party won one third of all the seats. Those socialists mattered. That was yeah. a left. That was a political left. We don't have I, that. I see Bernie's going to be like the Senate. Uh, fuck, what's he going to be? He's going to be like the chairman of something. Like the Senate Budget Committee or something like that. Oh. Well. We're going to see what Bernie actually believes. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, he's he's shackled by it, though, right? Like, what can he do? I don't know. What can he do? Yeah, well, I guess we'll see. Yeah. We'll I see. don't know. The motherfucker's in his late 70s. He doesn't have much to lose. If he doesn't swing for the fucking fences, then I guess. Yeah. We got our answer on whether or not Bernie believed any of that shit. Because I believed it. Right. Well, and in here, I knew um, I shouldn't have, but I did. Yeah, same here, man. Same here. I now went here, cam. I went campaign for Bernie, and I didn't think that he was going to win or could win or any of that. I didn't even necessarily know if he believed what he said. But worth a fucking shot, though. I mean, I'm not going to say we were all like idiots, you know. But no, no, no. Cause, that's because it was worth a shot. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, I know. I know. I We had to try. Yeah, that was that was the closest thing to what I believe that I've ever fucking seen. Right. So I had to go chase it. And compared to the again, 1912 and the Reichstag, got one third in an imperial parliament. Yeah, one third of those fuckers are Marxists outright. Well, like we were talking about, the nobility was losing their footing to all That's these right. new capitalists. That's right. You know? It's a time of upheaval. Um, all right. So here Trotsky picks up on something we also talked about last time. So that although it's the petty bourgeoisie that brought fascism into power in Germany, fascism in power is least of all the rule of the petty bourgeoisie. On the contrary, it is the most ruthless dictatorship of monopoly capital. And that's why, again, I think we need to be very concerned about what the Democrats are doing as well right now. Well, I I think I've decided that the person in America that I'm the most scared of is fucking Andrew Cuomo. The ruthless dictatorship of Monopoly Capital. I think that, you know, he's he stands in that space. Uh, so here Trotsky says that we'll Mussolini. Just, we'll just see what happens. Yeah. But Biden, says, mm-hmm. I mean, Biden's goose is cooked. He's living on yeah. borrowed time. Uh, I kind of just think Kamala is like in over her head mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, 
the shit that Cuomo's been doing with like the vaccines and stuff. Yeah, I've heard a little bit about this, but I haven't looked into it much myself. That guy scares but the shit out of me. It is very unsettling for sure. I don't, I, I don't know enough to talk on it much, but all right. So let's continue with uh, <laughs> with um, Mussolini. <laughs> with, Excuse me, with not Cuomo. Cuomo, not Cuomo, but Mussolini. <laughs> um, I know it's hard to tell the difference at times. On the contrary, it is well, the most ruthless dictatorship know, of monopoly capital. They're both Italian. Mussolini is right. The middle classes are incapable of independent policies. We've During talked periods, about this before. Fascists, oh yeah. they're always right. During the periods of great crisis, they are called upon to reduce the absurdity of the policies of one or two of the basic classes. Fascism succeeded in putting them at the service of capital. Such slogans as state control of trusts and the elimination of unearned income were thrown overboard immediately upon the assumption of power. Instead, the particularism of German quote-unquote lands, leaning upon the peculiarities of the petty bourgeoisie, gave way to capitalist police centralism. Every success of the internal and foreign policies of national socialism will inevitably mean the farther crushing of small capital by large. <laughs> that's and that's the big lie, right? Yeah. Like which is that oh, you know, we're actually doing it for small businessmen and all that bullshit. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's like the the funniest thing to me about fascism. And that's why you said on the last one, we have to somehow build solidarity with these people because the the ultimate enemy is the ultra wealthy. Yeah, totally. I mean, they want centralized police state. That's like the, well, if you're me funniest part, but if you're like a normal person, the sickest part of fascism is that it just like completely steamrolls its most fervent supporters first. Oh yeah. Well, and (laughs) that's what's about to happen. To all of these people who just stormed the Capitol. Yeah. Yeah, they, they're they the front line, which means they're the ones they're gonna that are going to get yeah. stepped on first. Yep. Um, yeah. Hey, it, the Beer Hall Pooch, you know, all those fuckers who just like got shot, right? It's sad. I mean, yeah. okay, so here's the thing, dude. Like, I grew up and am related to nothing but like unabashed monsters mm-hmm. you know racist <clears throat> cruel I, cruel people all of them and i bet that a lot of that was embodied in like uh doing things like ritualistic acts as to use trotsky's language whether it's church work uh, school it was definitely i mean we were like calvinists basically yeah, uh, we didn't go to church, or none of that, because we weren't about. Work to... was church. Well, yeah, totally. We were not yeah. about to fucking go give like fifty cents every week to go to Sunday school. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it was work. You know. Mm-hmm. So, but here's what Trotsky says: the program upon fascism, the program of the petty bourgeois illusions, is not discarded. It is simply torn away from reality and dissolved in ritualistic acts. 
could be religious, could be posting, you know? Oh no. Posting. What do you mean? That's going to change the world. Could be, uh, buying racist coffee. Oh, what about, uh, not buying racist coffee and even only buying anti-racist coffee. Even that is dissolving these political illusions into meaningless ritualistic acts. Okay. What about believing that my consumer choices matter? Same, same. Yeah. Okay. What about? (laughs) Hold on. All right. So the unification. I I can keep going. (laughs) No, no, no. The unification of all classes. What about thinking that Marvel is better than DC? The program of the petty bourgeois (laughs) illusion is not discarded. It's simply torn away from reality and dissolved in ritualistic acts like saying, I'm good because I have a Ford and that guy's bad because he has a Chevy. I'm good because I like Marvel and that guy's bad because he likes DC. I'm good because I recycle. And they're bad because they litter. Mm -hmm. And I... Meaningless bullshit. I only litter when I'm drunk. (laughs) <laughs> now you're bad <laughs> so, so here it is the unification of all classes reduces itself to semi-symbolic compulsory labor and to the confiscation of the labor holiday of May Day for the quote unquote benefit of the people okay which is what they were doing in Germany, right? That's why they're trying to beat up the protesters. <laughs> Which people? <laughs> all right, I got to pee so, again. <clears throat> all right. <laughs> sorry. Jared's, Jared's drinking yep. on the podcast. and Jared's rip-roaring. I'm sorry. The seal is loosened. Uh, I'll fucking do it again, all right? <laughs> 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 he is very angry that he got locked out. <laughs> oh, poor Cloud. All right, so Trotsky summarizes and concludes. Reducing the program of petty bourgeois illusions to a naked bureaucratic masquerade, National Socialism raises itself over the nation as the worst form of imperialism. Absolutely vain are hopes that Hitler's government will fail today or tomorrow, a victim of its internal inconsistency. The Nazis required the program in order to assume power, but power serves Hitler not at all for the purpose of fuming the program. His tasks are assigned to him by monopoly capital. The compulsory concentration of all forces and resources of the people in the interests of imperialism, the true historic mission of the fascist dictatorship from fucking Rome to today, means preparation for war, and this task, in its turn, brooks no internal resistance and leads to a further mechanical concentration of power. Fascism cannot be reformed or retired from service. It can only be overthrown. The political orbit of the regime leans upon the alternative, war or revolution. Those are your options. Pointing out the hypocrisy is worthless, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this kind of highlights what uh, 
I'm hearing some people talk about, which is the inevitability of, you know, some kind of war with China, some kind of military confrontation, not because, and of course it would be terrible for all the economic interests involved, but it wouldn't be necessarily terrible for monopolistic capital interests within the United States, especially if, um, the working classes in America decay to such an extent um, that, you know, it, it would basically mean that you would have, you know, a cheap labor pool for the same type of production at home. I mean, I don't know though. I don't, I really don't think it can play out that way because most of those capitalist supply chains lie in China. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of them have vested interests in China. But I mean, a lot of the German uh, industrialists had a lot of, you know, supply chains and vested interests that lay within, uh, you know, Britain and France, right? Yeah. I get, well, he, he said that they would be in vain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying it's an inevitability, but I think war of some kind is an inevitability. Maybe not necessarily with China, but maybe with some... Well, Someone mean, who's staking China's interest. We're sort of already having a trade war with them. Yeah. Um, and usually, like historically, trade mm-hmm. wars lead to hot wars. Right. So. And again, you have to consider the the mysticism here within America that, you know, this t- and, and racism too. You know, America is still a super racist society. And I think there's still a type of chauvinism when we talk about uh, China and, you know, the, 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 the <clears throat> particularly the Communist Party of China as yeah. well. Well, I could see America going out like Magellan. <laughs> I mean, I actually could, too. Like, I could see us just, like, getting all <laughs> ramped up for it and then just, like, losing in a big way on day yeah. one, you know? I mean... <laughs> It's a joke, and mm. it's kind of funny, but I can also see it happening. Right. No, I I think though, I think what I find most concerning about I mean, don't that we just most read, most empires' demise lies in like their micro militism. Right. Micro militarism, right? Micro militarism, yes. Yeah. Yeah, trying to um, you know make sure that every outpost in Gaul is fully staffed and. You know, and eventually you're hiring the the Gauls to staff it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and we've got what like 180 Gauls right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess what I find concerning here is that, you know, just given the development of forces in the last hundred years since you know trotsky's time of writing and how similar things are like when he's talking about you know people piloting space shuttles who don't believe in you know evolution right that's that shit still happens well i mean really though what he's writing about is like the evaporation of the frontier for germany he is yeah so the reason all of this sort of rings true, I guess, is that 
the frontier has evaporated from America. Mm-hmm. We tried to push it out into the Middle East, and it didn't really go that well. Right. And we successfully pushed it out into like Africa and South America for a little while. Mm-hmm. But that all was back in the glory days in the 1980s, you know? Uh, yeah, that's right. The last frontier now is SpaceX getting us to Mars. And spoiler alert, that's not going to work. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're stuck yeah. here with diminishing resources and each other. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to go this way. Revolution or war. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's that's what I find most concerning, I guess, is that... Um, that here, here's what I'm saying. That we're not... That right now we're living at the end of the last interbellum period in human history. Where widespread conflict and suffering at an almost universal level was not found. That 2031 to 2051 is going to make 1931 to 1951 look like a fucking, you know, child's child's play. But instead of, you know, imperial violence, uh, it's going to be um, rampant disease, climate disaster, famine, and yes, barbaric treatment at the hands of states as human migrations increase and... Um, Places just like become as nations become a siege mentality. Well, I mean, I think even all of those things are just going to pale in comparison to the amount of places that people live that just won't have water. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, ecological fallout basically is going to be a a big factor there right well i mean the the legacy of of western civilization is Mm -hmm. basically just ecological fallout right it's kind of funny you know um that the poem ozymandias like in a thousand years people are going to put the emphasis on the lone and level sands stretch far away right that this this uh tradition from you know keats and shelley all the way back to you know the romans and greeks and egyptians that it just produces a wasteland in the end and that you know yeah that we're living in that things are only going to keep getting worse that we're living in like the last the last even kind of good times you know people were saying about 2017 man what a shitty year 2018 man this year is even worse than 2017 2019 oh man what a what a terrible one thank god that's over 2020 oh my god what a bad year guys that's gonna be every fucking year guys i mean that's it yeah i just uh really cherish every time that it snows yeah here in colorado i yeah snow and rain Mm. Because we go, I mean, it's been two weeks now in Loveland. Two weeks since we had a drop of precip in January. Right. I was telling a couple friends this week. um, Most people, 
like in the Midwest, you know, they bitch about the snow and all that stuff. But uh, it's the second week in January, mm-hmm. and uh, this is the first time now that we have had like an actual snow. Right. That this has, winter. Yeah. Oh, a man. snow that has come down and stayed on the ground for a week without melting. And, and you basically live in northern Iowa in an area where you should have a lot of snow by now. Right? Yeah. Like 30 years ago, there'd be a lot of fucking snow out there. Yeah. When I was in, I think, third grade, we had a blizzard in October. I remember that blizzard. It was in Nebraska, too. Yeah. And yeah. the reason I remember it is because I was really pissed because we didn't get to go trick-or-treating. Mm-hmm. Because there's so much fucking snow. And just, you know, like, when I was growing up, too, man. Yeah. Uh, everything, like, when I was a kid, growing up on the farm, there was, like, all of these things that I was so excited to be able to do. And then I would learn how to do them. And then it was like the poison pill because now that's just your job. Right. And uh, one of the few things that I didn't hate in that arrangement was going out and clearing all of the snow. Like getting to, you know, go out, start up the loader tractor, let it warm up for a little bit, come back. I would walk from my dad's house the fucking quarter mile up to my grandma's. She'd start some hot cocoa, I'd go start the tractor, I'd come back, drink some hot cocoa, and then go out and, like, most of the day, use the tractor to move all the snow off of the, like, Mm -hmm. off the driveway, we'd plow the road and everything so we'd get around, and, uh, yeah, I don't know, the last, I don't know, two, three years, um, I used to cross-country ski quite a bit. And, uh, that's not really a thing anymore because, you know, not enough snow. Well, not even just not enough. You can't cross country ski when it's 40 degrees outside. <laughs> even, even if there was a blizzard the day before, you, know, right. yeah. you can't do it when it's 33. Right. It needs to be like 25 degrees and there's just been snow on the ground for a while. Well, uh, Trotsky leaves us with a postscript. All right. This is written one year after Hitler took power in Germany, still before the tumult of the Second World War, but after his ideas have started to play out. The first anniversary of the Nazi dictatorship is approaching. All the tendencies of the regime have had time to take on a clear and distinct character. The socialist revolution, quote-unquote socialist revolution, pictured by the petty bourgeois masses as a necessary supplement to the national revolution, is officially liquidated and condemned. The brotherhood of classes found its culmination in the fact that on a day especially appointed by the government, the haves renounced the hors d'oeuvres and dessert in favor of the have-nots. The struggle against unemployment is reduced to the cutting of semi-starvation doles in two. The rest is the task of uniform statistics. Quote-unquote planned autarky is simply a new stage of economic disintegration. Here he's referring to autarky, this concept of like a self-sustaining internal system. 
The more important the police regime of the Nazi is in the field of national economy, the more it is forced to transfer its efforts to the field of foreign policy. This corresponds fully to the inner dynamics of German capitalism, aggressive through and through. The sudden turn of the Nazi leaders to peaceful declarations could deceive only utter simpletons. <laughs> what other method remains at Hitler's disposal to transfer the responsibility for internal distresses to external enemies and to accumulate under the press of the dictatorship the explosive force of nationalism? This part of the program, outlined openly even prior to the Nazis' assumption of power, is now being fulfilled with iron logic before the eyes of the world. The date of the new European catastrophe will be determined by the time necessary for the arming of Germany. It is not a question of months, but neither is it a question of decades. It will be but a few years before Europe is again plunged into war, unless Hitler is forestalled in time by the inner forces of Germany. November 2nd, 1933. So, the period of appeasement, that was basically... That was um, after this. It was after this, but yeah. uh, that was basically all of that like nonviolent uh, opposition in passive practice. Resistance. Yep, that was passive resistance in practice, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, to, to I mean, be fair, like, what okay, was Chamberlain so, going to do? Well, anyone, know? anyone that's ever like dealt with a bully before, right? understands how passive resistance goes right yeah yeah that's a good example it's a good example you know now here's the thing okay let me let me problematize that a little bit because yes the bully is beating you up and passive resistance is not going to stop the bully from beating you up Hard thing is to say how the do we stop the bully is going to count on your right. passive resistance. Right. But then the harder thing is is to say how do we stop bullies from happening? How do we keep there from being more bullies? And and I mean and you know it's 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 a really difficult thing to grapple with because I don't I don't know. You know, when we talk about uh Hitler for instance, I quote I, think, I quoted from this guy I Volker think uh, I think the real question is how do you deal with bullies without becoming one yourself? Yeah. So, because dealing with bullies isn't that tough. Right. You just become a bully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You become Stalin. Yeah. I mean, I'm serious. Uh. <laughs> As someone that dealt with being bullied a lot. Yeah. That's Stalin was bullied a lot. Yeah. yeah. Well, as you've famously said to me, I am basically Joseph Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's gonna he's gonna ice pick me guys <laughs> well, we'll see um but yeah so i wanted to talk about that uh biography that i used ascent hitler ascent by volker ulrich ulrich's like hot take on the nazis is that the state should have been more repressive that you know weimar germany should have you know thrown the fucking book at him after the pooch should have smacked that shit down right away okay well and that's basically done a campaign of, of repression against them yeah well that's automatically a flawed a flawed viewpoint because why would they do that right <laughs> um 
Now he seems to think that Volker, that would have helped things. Volker, if he was in control, would do that. Yeah, but he wasn't. Right. Yeah, and but I mean, and that's kind of like what we're saying that you know your gut instinct with the bully is to like strike back to be be more violent, right? Well, I don't know about more violent, but you definitely can't just let them do whatever they want to you. But the thing is, is that then that leads to mutually assured destruction, right? Like that's the end state of that, that line of thinking is we're all just going to die together. So again, like the hard thing to do is to say, why are there bullies? Why is this person so angry? You know, why are these people so upset? How do we change? How do we change the system? Because hurt people hurt people. Like we were talking about, these guys came from the Prussian Empire. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there is fixing that. I mean, social conditioning, man. I mean, we're we're not reactionaries, right? Like everything about our our upbringing and class and the way that the economy has gone in the last ten years of our lives would put us into the Trumpsters camp, right? Like, I mean, maybe I don't know. I. I got a lot to of people of ours. I got to basically grow up in like the libertarian, reactionary, racist, Protestant, Calvinist, whatever the fuck you want to call it. Yeah, I got to grow up in all that shit, and I saw how damaging it was mm-hmm. to everyone. Um. I was insulated from that because I was from kind of a, you know, middle class, middle, middle class. I don't know, but a middle class family of, you know, like clerks and servants and artisanal craftsmen and stuff. And, uh, you know, so I had to like basically hit the mean streets for a while and go like, you know, doesn't matter where you start out at. Yeah. You know, I don't know that there's an answer for the question that you're asking. Yeah. So, beat them down? Some of them, probably. Yeah. Others, no. Trotsky used blocking battalions, you know, <laughs> in the in the Civil War with the whites. I mean, I'm just... <laughs> once it's to and he that, defended it. Well, once it's to that point, though, it's already out of hand. Yeah. You know, you, you're not going to... You're not going to heal with pain. You're not going to. You're just going forward at that point, right? Yeah. You like, I mean, not every, not every problem has a solution. And I think that's, oh man, you basically just described the 1917 Russian revolution, right? Like not every problem has a solution. Yeah. Some things are just problems. They're just bad. Yeah. And you can't do that much about it maybe right you know and so yeah i think you're right like when you know trotsky man someday we'll do i guess this is the revolutions podcasts like (laughs) you know thing that they're they've got going well i think we've made i think we've made a pretty good case that we're just going to like amalgamate every podcast we've ever heard (laughs) <laughs> and uh we're, we're the the national socialists of podcasting <laughs> yeah yeah we're just gonna fucking see what works and try it out but uh 
(laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, yeah, this has been a very interesting reading series, right? Yeah. This, This Trotsky, man. Fucking good shit. Fucking good shit. Mm. I'm mm. growing on him. I'm growing on him. Yeah. I don't know shit about Trotsky. <laughs> oh, that reminds me. So my last thing I wanted to end with, I found a book, another book, Jared. And this is going to be a future topic. Okay. All right. Let me read you the title. The Spartacist Uprising of 1919 and the Crisis of the German Socialist Movement. A study of the relation of political theory and practice. Okay. So diving in more on that split within the Socialist Party during World War One, and about Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht and their uprising in Berlin. Who are the Spartacists? That was Rosa Luxemburg. She founded the Spartacist League. Oh, no shit? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. They were the they were the we talked about the, you know, the lefties down in Bavaria. This is about the the lefties up in Berlin and their their revolution, the Spartacist uprising. So sometime down the road. I've got a few other things in the in the hopper. All right. But uh yeah, wow. sometime down the road. We'll take a look. I got my Beatrix Potter book in the mail. Oh nice. I'm excited for that. I'm, not, I'm excited it's to such a big book, dude. I'm gonna be so Jared's gonna do some <laughs> some compost bin like hosting, and then I'm gonna be the Jared, and I'm just gonna yeah. show up and be like, and I'm, I'm gonna, gonna try and get him off topic as much as I can. And... I'm gonna do that thing that I talk <laughs> shit about, where we like focus on one person. <laughs> but uh, Beatrix Potter's fucking cool, though. She really is. Uh, yeah. Like, if I believed in having heroes, Beatrix Potter would be one of them. Yeah. All right. Well, we've been the compostman of history. It's getting late. Jared's got to go to bed. Dude, there's no way I'm going to bed. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a job interview tomorrow. Well, Godspeed. I've, uh, I've got to wake up and attempt to run a company like I do every day. Mm. Yeah. It's going to be fun. <laughs> it's going to be so fun. Well, just remember, Jared, that your role is the critical component, just like everybody else's, of this bigger working unit, the family of your business. And even though it might suck sometimes, you might not be super happy about your pay, you really need to understand that you're just a cog in this machine that runs efficiently because of your willingness to be there behind the great force of American nationalism. Well, what can I say? I feel my hate for anyone that's not the master race growing by the second, actually. So, uh, there's not really that many Jewish people or minorities in general around Sioux city, but, uh, Catholics. mm, Well, okay. No, there's, there's plenty of Hispanic people. I guess I can just focus my rage on them, but, uh, I'll have just to for- as long as I'll it's not focused. That, <laughs> I'll have to forget that they're actually doing literally all of the work around here. So, yeah. Uh, well, just so long as that rage <laughs> isn't focused on the people who actually hold power in the form of capital. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> just so long. Any rage yeah. at anyone else. That's, um, <laughs> I think 
I think I'll give my boss a hug tomorrow. <laughs> Tell him you appreciate his iron will and firm hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He'll get such a hard on. <laughs> I understand that you've worked hard to build this company, and that's why you're so passionate about it. Um, sorry I've been such a bastard. <laughs> Let's go listen to Rush. <laughs> and not the band. Dude. Oh my god. My boss has definitely never heard the band Rush. How the fuck is Rush Limbaugh not dead yet? Oh my god, dude. Seriously. It's it's the spite. It's all that that preservative evil. I I think I'm onto something with that. Well, you just got to have it for the right people now, you know, like Noam Chomsky. He's got he's got the same thing going for him, but a spite for the fucking bourgeoisie, right? Hey, man, I assign no value to the spite. I'm just saying it's a tool. If you have the hate burning in you, you cannot die. (laughs) I'm going to close it on that. Oh, shit. That's perfect. (laughs) That's an epic line. (laughs) If you have the hate burning inside you, you cannot die. (laughs) That'll be emblazoned. You're going to be up there like Stalin, like Big Brother and Banners, and that'll be emblazoned beneath it. It'll be like you with like a sneer of cold command on your face. If you have the hate inside you, you cannot die. (laughs) Bernie Sanders 2024. (laughs) Oh, Uh, love you, buddy. I got way too drunk for this. (laughs) This is fun. This is a good one. Hell yeah. Take those pictures down, shake it out Truth or consequence, say it aloud Use that evidence, race it around There goes my hero Watch him as he goes There goes my hero He's on to Don't the best of them beat it out.